Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 111. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is a very old friend of the IJ, been involved with juggling for many, many years, Mr. E himself, Jackie Erickson. Before I talk to Jackie, let's thank our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers, including their yearly festival, can be found at juggle.org. All right, now go out there. Drop Everything. Get ready to listen to Jackie Erickson. Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 111. My very special guest, Mr. Jackie Erickson. Hello, Jackie. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? Good, good. Now, you and I have been friends for a long time, but uh, I didn't meet you until the early 80s. Let's have a little background on on your life. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Fremont, Nebraska, but we moved early several times by the time i was three years old we were living in detroit michigan and that's when i first started remembering things we were in detroit from 1940 till 1944 my father was in the war industry and he took a transfer from packard motor companies in detroit where he was a tool crib operator he went to bremerton washington also as a tool crib operator. Now, what is that, a tool crib operator? What is that exactly? Uh, In a factory as large as something like Packard Motor, where you're making 100 tanks a day, they had a huge library of tools. And the tool crib operator would manage the library. So let's say that uh, Joe Dokes, the mechanic, needed a sprocket tension reliever, he would go to the tool crib operator and check one out. Okay. So he was like a tool librarian. Okay. Tool librarian would be a good descriptor, I would think. And so your earliest memories were back at that time in Detroit? Yeah. uh, I had a really fun childhood. I was what was a latchkey child, although the term hadn't been invented yet, from the time I was five years old, golden school, going to school. So I had the run of Detroit. I learned how to ride the buses and the trolleys and uh, go anywhere that I wanted to. Now, latchkey, that sort of just means that you were sort of on your own. You kind of were independent even at that young age? That was it. There was an older woman living with my folks who was sort of like my older sister. She was uh, 17, and she sort of looked after me by doing her nails and talking about her boyfriend. And did you have brothers and sisters? No, I was an only child. And what about your mom? Was she working as well? My mom was the uh, jack-of-all-trades. She sold dresses. She was a waitress. Uh, she became the apartment house manager where we moved to later on in Detroit. Uh, she did a lot of things. She worked for Montgomery Wars at one point after we moved to California, uh, while my do- father was working for Sears. Now, I know athletics played a big part in your life later on. Were you athletic as a kid? Did you play a lot of sports? I did. I did. The first contact I had with juggling, in fact, was uh, I had made a football team and a basketball team in sixth grade that uh, traveled around the city playing other schools. And the coach, Mr. Miller, used to stand in front of us while we were warming up and juggle three softballs. Huh. Was he just a, he had no, no association with the circus or showbiz, just a guy just a coach? Did yeah. he try to teach you as just, well? Just a coach. And he could do a three-ball cascade. And he refused to show us how to do it. 
bastard. <laughs> yeah. Well, because you think that's such a good thing for kids to learn. Yeah. Why would you think he was uh, keeping that uh, wonderful skill to himself? I have <laughs> no idea. He's uh, long gone, so we can't ask him. But I, it irritated me. I tried to juggle. We lived in the in an orange grove, so I had plenty of oranges to juggle. And I always tried to, as you know, a shower pattern is a difficult pattern. That's the one that everybody tries to learn. Couldn't do it, so I gave up. Yeah, I always think that juggling is not that hard if someone shows you how to do it. But if people try to figure it out, just like from scratch with no no instruction, it's pretty mysterious. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was a smart kid, but uh, I didn't have enough brains to figure out how to do a cascade. So I just gave it up. Then uh, in 1980, Dave Gillis, the founder of Give and Take Jugglers here in Philadelphia, was at a music festival I attended. And he showed me how to juggle. And that was the end of it. Right there, I learned how, and rest is history. So from the time you were a, a, a kid playing baseball and uh, football, and you first saw juggling, we're talking quite a gap before you actually learned. Uh, yeah, 30, 30, uh, 33 years. <laughs> uh, imagine how good you could have been if it that back then that day, 33 years earlier. Yeah. I I never have given it any thought about how could I've good. I never was a what you would call a great juggler. Uh, five balls was my limit, and I uh, had a good career in other ways. I played basketball in college and overseas. I was a professional bowler. Now overseas, where did you get to play basketball overseas? So where actually, let's start back, let's go back up. Where did you go to college at? I went to the University of California in Riverside. And I played three years there. And then I was drafted, was sent to France. And I played basketball for the Army while I was over there at a company level. Okay. And we traveled around, we traveled around France playing other teams. It was a lot of fun. Now, I'm sure that was preferable than actually seeing any combat or anything. Now, that was 61 to 64. Uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was ah. going on. I was an enlisted man, but I had uh, the equivalent of a college degree. I uh, just didn't have the piece of paper, but I had the units. And uh, they made me what was called the Troop Information Officer. So I was put on temporary duty with the Air Force at the base where I was stationed to read news reports of what was going on in uh, Cuba. And then every afternoon at uh, 4.45, we'd have a all-base meeting, and I would get up in front of the uh, 700 officers and men and tell them what was going on at the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis there in the middle of France. And then how did you get involved with the military? So you're going to college but there was no uh, draft during that time, so you were just... There was a draft, Dan. There was, oh, there was. a draft until, until after I was drafted. <laughs> oh, see, to me, I always, you always think about, you know, in my time, you think about Vietnam. You, you, don't, yes. you really don't think people were drafted for the, the Cuban Missile Crisis time. Well, uh, I was drafted just as a matter of course. There wasn't anything going on. The Korean War ended in 1954, and it was... A sort of peacetime. There was the Cold War going on, and I was drafted in uh, 60, took a student deferment. Then in 61, I was drafted again, 
and I didn't have a deferment left. And so I went into the U.S. Army September 25th and the 1961 to September 24th, 1963. So you're saying, you're telling me that people were just drafted as a matter of course. People were drafted until until the end of this, uh, the war in Vietnam. There were so many kids that were killed in that war, 56,000 killed and another 500,000 or so, 300, 500,000 wounded that the public sentiments against the draft was so high that they just said, that's enough of that noise. Well, that's really interesting, like I say, because people were drafted like for World War II, and then they were drafted again you know, during Vietnam. But in between... No, the draft continued. Oh. It, ne- it never stopped. It hmm. ran until 1967, 68, wow. 68, 69. I don't know. I'm fuzzy on the day, but it, the Vietnam War ended the draft. The end of it. And so you, so you remember quite a bit of uh, historical events. So you remember the bombing in uh, Hiroshima and things of that of that nature? Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, uh, yes, well in my memory. I was horrified, absolutely horrified. The, um, what was the feeling in the country? Was it feeling that it was justified, that it saved American lives? How was the general uh, you know, sentiment? The overall sentiment was uh, good for us, fry those bastards. It was a brutal time. Hmm. There was racial tension against the Germans. There was racial tension against the Japanese. Some of my friends in California had been interred during the Second World War. In fact, I'm still good friends with a professor, a retired professor who still works there at UCLA, psychologist, who was interred for three years during the Second World War. Back in California, where was he interred? He was from the Riverside, California area, and he was interred near Bakersfield. That was a very shameful time, that that whole incidence of internment. I guess everyone of that descent of Japanese descent was considered the enemy at that time, even though if they were Americans or not. Right. Uh, the, The war footing was universal in the country. One of the things I remember vividly after we moved to the state of Washington was FBI agents coming to our school and taking the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade boys out into the baseball diamond and giving us decks of cards that showed the silhouettes of Japanese warplanes. And we were supposed to look out for them, and there was a number on the card that if we saw a plane that looked like these silhouettes, we were to call that number. Wow. I remember I was still part of the draft for Vietnam, uh-huh. but by then the war was already over. You know, I had turned 18, but the war had already been over for a couple of years by that point. So I never really had to do any service or anything of that nature. That must have been quite a different right. time when you were sort of forced into military activity, whether you wanted to or not. It was a hard thing for me because I'm I'm more of a pacifist than anything else. And I did think of refusing the draft, but at that point, they were not, people weren't going to Canada. Right. Uh, they were going to jail. Right, right, yeah. And I guess the public sentiment at that time was not really in the favor of, of dodging the draft in any way, where in Vietnam, it was a lot more of an unpopular war. Correct. So you're in the military, you're, but you're, you're fortunate enough that you're doing a thing time where there's no really combat to, per se. Correct. 
and you got to also play sports and play basketball. Yes, and I was the company clerk, which is if you're going to be in the military, that's the job to have. Why is that? What does the is it very important and has power, or why is the clerk the best position to be? Well, yes, that position has power because you do all of the paperwork for everybody in the company. <laughs> and, uh, they better be nice to you or you can lose their papers. I see. So everybody wants to be on good terms with the clerk. Yeah. And uh, the other perk was that I didn't have to do any uh, extra duty. I didn't have KP. I didn't have guard duty and so forth and so on. And so how long were you in the military? Two years. Two years exactly. Was that the mandatory amount of time you had to serve, two years? Well, I was supposed to go to a reserve outfit for a number of years after that. But I took my discharge and stayed in France. My wife was there. She was working on the same base where I was a GI. She was the education advisor, the equivalent of a major in the Army. And uh, we decided that we liked it. So we stayed another six months in, fr in France and then traveled around Europe. Now, so you were married before and then you, you moved over to France together or did you meet her in France? No, uh, we married uh, the third month of my basic training in November 25th of 1961. And uh, it was sent to France and she followed about three months later. We had a pretty nice house and uh, lived pretty well because we were making not a great amount of money, the equivalent of about uh, $600 a month between the two of us. But we were in the military, so we got all the military perks. And for us, like gas was only uh, 16 cents a gallon and a uh, case of beer was two bucks. So you've been married, what, over 60 years then? Yes, we just celebrated our 61st anniversary in November. Well, congratulations. That's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. It's been 62 good years for me. I wish my wife could say the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always I have a joke too that goes along those lines that my wife does, doesn't appreciate, but uh, yeah. you got me beat by quite a few. I'm just going on uh, 26 years. Of course, in 1961, you were married a couple about a month before I was born. Uh huh. So that kind of shows us our relationship and our ages. Yeah. Now, after the army, where did you go after the, after you got out of France? After we came back to this country. We had a stopover in Philadelphia for a couple of weeks while we got stuff together. Her mom and dad, stepdad, were living here at the time. And we went back to California so that I could finish up my degree. Uh, Donna had a couple of other classes that she wanted to take as well. We both had our teaching certificates at that time. And we taught, I taught sixth grade and she taught fourth grade in uh, Moreno Valley which is just outside of Riverside. So your main career was as a teacher all the years, you know, that I didn't know you? I mean, I know, I know you've had many jobs, but have you always maintained your role as a teacher? I always maintained my role of a teacher from 1966. I taught in California one year, in the school district of Philadelphia for one year, private school for four years, and the rest of the time, I was in Upper Darby, California, which is a suburb of Philadelphia, uh, for, gosh, 22 years, 26 years, excuse me, 26 years. Yeah, that was, that was a good job. I taught special ed, uh, and it was really a wonderful career for me. I loved teaching. I think I was good at it. 
Uh, I'm still good friends with many of the students from that time. I was along for the development of a lot of good jugglers that came out of our program there. I was able to put together a juggling program for the whole school. And then from that, the Mystery Jugglers Company was born. And we had a 22-year career, I guess you could call it, uh, as the Mystery Juggler. Well, before we get into your, your juggling career, at what point were you a professional bowler? Because I know you were a professional bowler for a while. Oh, uh, yes. Well, that goes back to 1957. I started bowling in the league. I averaged 163 that first year. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how much sports relate to juggling, even bowling, where the idea uh-huh. of, of putting a ball in a particular place, was it 80 feet away? How long is a, a bowling alley? It's uh, 63 feet to the head pin. Right. So the idea of taking a ball and rolling it, you know, accurately that distance, and then, of course, having to do it under pressure, especially let's say you're in the 10th frame of a 300 game. Yeah. It, it has that same kind of mental sort of preciseness that juggling has. I'm not always, yeah, I've always I, felt that I, way. I have to agree with you. I love the sport. I bowled until uh started having a family and we came back here and I just didn't have time to continue on with the sport. So I quit when we moved to Philadelphia in 1966. And then of course, by that time your teaching career was in full bloom and that yes. was, took up most of your time. Uh, yeah. And I had a couple of other jobs too, because of one thing and another, I attended bar for a few years and uh, I refereed basketball and soccer for many years. And then you mentioned the give-and-take juggler. So that was your entree into sort of the actual hobby of juggling and really being so enthusiastic. Who were the give-and-take jugglers, and what was your experience with them learning to juggle? Well, it's quite extensive. Dave Gillis is the director of the give-and-take jugglers now, as he was then. And Nick Gregory was his partner. And they would juggle at a famous venue in Philadelphia for a long time called Headhouse Square. And I was lucky enough after that second year that I saw them, uh, when I asked them for uh, what kind of tricks can I do now that I know how to juggle, uh, it was about three months after that, Dave called me up and said, I have a juggling job here. Uh, would you be interested in it? And I said, sure. So my first juggling job was 19 aught. Let's see, 60. Uh, oh, I thought I thought that Dave Gillies taught you to juggle. So you learned to juggle before you met him. No, I had no idea how to juggle. I had completely forgotten it as a skill. Okay. I thought this was something I could probably do until I was 90. I anticipated a long life. And I wanted something I would be able to do. And basketball certainly wasn't it. I played basketball competitively until I was 58. And my nose started to get broken and my ribs started to get broken. In fact, Nick Gregory, who was a give-and-take juggler, broke my ribs (laughs) when we were playing (laughs) basketball once. But how did you actually learn to juggle? Did you teach yourself or, or did someone teach you? I will say that I have some compulsivity in my makeup. And once I learned how to juggle, I got books on how to juggle. The Carlo book, mm-hmm. Finnegan's book, the Klutz book later on. And I would learn those tricks. And then I would ask other jugglers when I would see them, how did, how did you do that one? And so on. But how did you even learn the Cascades? Because last I heard, 
or last in the, the podcast, you had a, a coach who never showed you how to juggle, but we never actually learned how you actually learned to juggle. That was how I was 10. Right. Uh, they, I was at a music festival and Dave and Nick were putting on shows there and teaching people to juggle. Okay. And they taught, they taught me in like five minutes, this is how you do a cascade. And I went, oh. And within a half an hour, I was able to do, you know, 20 catches of a cascade uh, just because of my athletic background. Okay. So I'm saying, so then in a couple of years, you're saying then they started getting your actual work because you had progressed so much. Uh, I would not say that I had progressed a whole lot, but there were, Dave was <laughs> a successful promoter and he got a lot of work. Right. And so over the years, as my skills and knowledge progressed, I worked more and more for him and then formed my own company. And of course, your company was called Mr. E Juggling Company. And who were some of the members of your company and what kind of shows did you do? Okay, well, permit me to correct you. Sure. It was called Mystery, M-Y-S-T-E-R-Y, right. for the pun. I see. I thought I said Mystery. Yeah, I was known as Mr. E. Right. And why not call it Mystery Juggling Company? Because we did incorporate magic into the show. And how many people were in the company, and what are some of the names we would know of the jugglers who were in the company? Uh, I don't know as how you would know many of them. Uh, Matt Ponce de Leon competed in the juniors in 1991 at UCLA, uh, came in sixth. Jen Slaw, everyone knows, she was uh, with me for 20 years. I was with her, really, because she's uh, such a delight to work with and such a skilled performer. Yeah, she's gone on to quite a career as a, as a speaker as well now. Right, right. She's uh, got a niche card for herself, and she's enjoying her life as a mom and uh, her life as an educator as well. Yeah, I'm very, very pleased for her. And what kind of venues? Did you almost do walk-arounds or did you do shows as well? Oh, yeah. We had, we had an hour-long show and I, you know, I break my arm, pat myself on my back, but we had a, we had a darn good show. We did, uh, let's see, our longest running gig was uh, 13 consecutive years. We worked for Oh, now I'm drawing a blank. Wilmington, a Delaware. Wilmington, Delaware had us there for 13 consecutive years. We did the Boys uh, and Girls Clubs of Wilmington show every year, and then we did First Night for them for a number of years. And we did uh, two different half-hour shows for them. And I imagine it composed of solo work but also teamwork. Uh, how do you think uh, you rated yourself as a club passer? So I know that's something you like to do. Oh, I would say that I am an adequate club passer. If uh, I can pass eight clubs with somebody who can do seven. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm lucky here in that Greg Kennedy and Shana Kennedy have the circadium about 15 minutes from my house. And Greg and I have been friends for over 30 years. And I go up there on Wednesday nights, and Greg is always there. And usually we can pass for about a half hour or so together. Yes, and in fact, we were just doing uh, Ultimates last Wednesday night. And that's uh, about the limit of my abilities. My seven is pretty solid. Well, that's pretty impressive. I mean, considering that... Uh... 
you're an older man, the idea that juggling is this lifetime pursuit, uh, the fact that you still can pass at your age is, is, is impressive. I, I like to sound the horn for everybody out there. You want an exercise that's fun, that relaxes you, become a juggler. And what do you attribute this ability to juggle for so long? Do you feel that you've taken care of yourself? I know you're, you're athletic and you were involved in sports. Did you also sort of follow a good diet? And do you believe in certain things that will help our listeners live a long, productive life where they can juggle into their 80s like you're doing? Well, I'd like to sound the horn for uh, watching out for alcohol because I was an alcoholic for a number of years. And I quit doing that, and that certainly has helped me age, uh, if not gracefully, <laughs> at least age well. Well, I'm sure if you had kept kept drinking, you, you wouldn't be around any longer. That really is a stepping to an early grave, I think. Yeah, and my wife is a phenomenal cook, and she takes care of the diet. So we eat extremely well in our house here. I'm looking forward to a vegetable soup this evening for dinner. And you've always stayed quite slender. I mean, you're you're quite a tall gentleman. How how tall are you, Jack? Oh, I've lost a couple inches. Uh, <laughs> I was I was six four. And now I'm closer to six two. And you're, you're you couldn't have been more than two hundred pounds. I mean, how much did you weigh at your top? No, no, I I never weighed. I weighed two hundred and two pounds at one point when I was trying to bulk up for football, and I looked like a pear on stilts. <laughs> right. It was, it was it was not a pretty sight. So I most of my life I weighed probably one hundred and eighty five. I was pretty ill back in May and hospitalized for uh, nine days. I lost 10 pounds then, so I'm at 175 now, and I hope to maintain that. I'd like to even drop a few more pounds. I am tall and very skinny. Yeah, I can see you as a basketball player, but not as a football player. I mean, basketball for sure. Well, football was my first love. I wanted to play football. I I had some skills there, and uh, I played a lot of intramural ball, but I never did play organized football. It was, well, those people want to hurt you, and I couldn't see that. Well, plus having people hit you in the legs. You're a tall guy, and having them tack you around the knees, and it just seems like a recipe for, for injury. Yeah, I I didn't play football because I thought that was a recipe for injury. Oddly yeah. enough, I was knocked unconscious three times playing basketball. I had ribs broken twice. I had my nose broken twice playing basketball. <laughs> Non-contact sport by <laughs> and how did how did Nick Gregory break your ribs, the juggler? You said he broke your ribs as well. Uh, he did, uh, dirty son of a gun. <laughs> I think he would tell you honestly that I faked him into the cheap seats and he came down on my chest. Oh, that was playing basketball. That was playing basketball, yes. Okay, not a, not a juggling-related injury. Have you had any juggling-related injuries? No, no. I have <laughs> never had a juggling injury to speak of. My hands are bothering me right now because I have uh, arthritis pretty bad, and I get these arthritis attacks every once in a while, and I'm going through the one right now where my hands hurt a lot, but it has not been stopping me from throwing clubs around. In addition to the Mr. E Juggling Company, you also had Mr. E's Night of the Juggler. That was an annual uh, big show you had put on. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that was a pride and joy, I'll admit to that, and that was just complete serendipity. The wonderful group Air Jazz 
mm-hmm. was booked into the Upper Darby Performing Arts Center. And Josiah Tannenbaum stayed with a friend, and John Held and Peter Davison stayed here at my house. And in talking to them, I asked them if they would mind doing a juggling show at my school, Drexel Hill Middle School, where I had a school juggling program. And they said, sure. And while they were performing for my school, the director of the art center said, are you having them there? And I said, yeah, we're, you know, our school was paying for them. He said, oh, how did you work that? And I said, well, I just asked them and so forth. He says, well, could you do a show like that for us? Hmm. And I said, sure, why not? So that was, I think, 79. Yeah, it was 1979 that they performed. And then, no, I'm sorry, 1989 that they performed. And uh, the following year, uh, Harry Dietzner, wonderful man, uh, director of the Upper Darby Performing Arts Center, said, Jackie, could you put a show together for $2,000? And I said, I think I can. So I hired four different sets of jugglers, and I gave everybody, let's see, how did that work? This is four, five. I can, I, the math is not right. Well, for, you'd give each one $500 if it was 2000 total. Yeah, they, they got about $500 a piece. We split it four ways. The performers were Tony Duncan and Jackie Reese, Michael Menez, Michael Lane Troutman, and Cindy Marvel. Wow, that's a good show. And Jen Slaw and two other kids from the juggling program at Drexel Hill Middle School. And we got a standing O, about 300 people. And after the show was over, Harry came to me and said, you want to do one next year? And I said, sure. And that was the beginning of the show. And we did them every year for 10 years. Now, here's one of my favorite stories. After five years, Harry called me up and said, Jack, we've had a wonderful running run, but the directors want to go a different direction, so we're not going to have you back next year. And I said, wonderful, Harry. It's been (laughs) great. Thank you so much. Right. And about three weeks later, the Performing Arts Center sent out a mailer to all of the people who were season tickets holders of the Arts Center. And one of the questions that they asked was, what was your favorite show? And Mysteries Night of the Jugglers won in a landslide as the favorite show of everybody. (laughs) You had to feel good about that. (laughs) That shows them. Yeah, and I felt great about that. And about a week later, Harry called me up and said, the producers were wondering if you, the directors, excuse me, were wondering if you'd like to do another show next year. So the direction they wanted to go was away from their most popular show. That didn't make much sense. Right. So we did five more after that, and we increased our attendance every year until the 10th year when we had 1,016 people see the show. And who who were some of the jugglers that appeared over the years? Who were some of the named jugglers? Oh, gosh. You did. I did. You did. Yep. I was with in a show with Jay Gilligan and uh, David Kane. That's right. That's right. They each did a solo and they did their team events. Let's see who else was there. Um, I remember Jay Gilligan was a little, little uh, not not afraid, but he he was sort of in his sort of a, uh, artistic phase. I think he had like black fingernails, and I think some of the people didn't know what to make of him back in those days. Uh, yeah, that was that was after his appearances at the, in the Night of the Jugglers. He was straight up. Hmm. Uh, 
when he appeared for he was in two different shows. Let's see, Pat McGuire and Ben Talpin were, had one uh, second and third place in the mm-hmm. juniors one year, and they came in the following year. Jeff Mason was in there. Uh, Double Trouble, the car, Nick and Alex Carvonis. And Jeff Mason is kind of an un, unsung hero. He was like the first guy to really sort of move the Diablo forward in the IGA. Oh, wow, Jeff. Like he came out of nowhere with a very advanced Diablo routine. He was one of my favorite people. Uh, really liked the young man. I got to hang out with him in Denver. I believe that was 87. And we went out to dinner together, he and I, before the competitions for the uh, seniors. And he said, I'm going to win this tonight. And I said, I know you are. Good for you. (laughs) He did. And he beat Benji. Right. And he did it with the Diablo, three cigar boxes, and three bowls. Yeah, he, he was very polished. It was a great act. It really was a great act. And Benji had, I don't know, he had, I think he did seven bowls at one point, and he did some very nice club work and so on and so on, but he dropped a lot. And yeah. That really, that really put him down because Jeff did not have a drop. He was, I am sorry, he had one drop, and he was really good. Yeah, Benji Hill was another name that people, people of my generation knew very well who kind of disappeared uh-huh. from the, the juggling and the IGA scene. Yeah, he did a lot of coaching. Well, I think a lot of people were sort of glad he disappeared from the scene. He had kind of a, a divisive um, reputation in the IGA, to put it mildly. Yeah, that was something that always surprised me about the IGA. Well, not about the IGA, but about jugglers. Pretty much the juggling community is one of the finest communities I've ever been associated with. They're welcoming and they're <laughs> they're not prejudiced, but they really don't like behavior that they find offensive. And some of the things that Benji was doing, people found to be offensive. I did not know him uh, well. I didn't have an opinion one way or another, but I was aware that he was not liked. Well, I guess you would call it, call the, the behavior predatory. I mean, there was there was nothing substantial, but there was always rumors, and there were quite a few young men who who uh, were sort of taken under his wing and would have different stories uh, about uh, their experiences with him. Yeah, there are there are a lot of stories, uh, and they to me are rumors as far yeah. as I know. Uh, but there's an awful lot of stories. I can't really speak to that other than I'm aware of them. I think another thing was a lot of the people he coached ended up having a very similar style to himself. Uh-huh. And they used to refer to them as Benji bots. Yes, Benji so. bots. Yeah. They were tremendous technical jugglers. I'll give them that. Uh, one of them, uh, what was his name? Maybe Adam Cariotis, maybe? Adam Cariotis. Thank you. Adam Cariotis, tremendous juggler. He came and juggled in the Philadelphia show one year. We had a lot of very fine jugglers in that uh, as well. Uh, and Adam came. I never saw him. Benji came to me and he said, Adam opens the show and we're leaving right afterwards and we're not going to talk to anybody. Ah, This sounds sort of like him. Yeah. I said, okay. And Adam opened up the show without an introduction to speak of. Uh, I just made something up and did this tremendous, just wonderful routine. And that was it. I never saw either one of them again. (laughs) Yeah. Last time I saw Benji, he had, uh, he was working on cruise ships, 
Yes. And a friend of ours was on a ship with him and videotaped his performance. Uh-huh. And the amount of material that he stole, not only from us, the Raspini brothers, but also from Michael Davis, uh-huh. was such an egregious degree that he actually had, I actually asked him to pay us, to pay us some money for the material he had stolen. And he actually paid us and admitted that he had, take, it was hard to not admit it because it was on videotape. Wow. And he agreed not to do it anymore in the future. So I was not aware of that, Jay. My goodness. Well, he tried to, you know, he tried to say it didn't happen, but we said, well, we have this videotape. And uh-huh. uh, he even would sort of mock my voice and, you know, not only stole the material, but also stole the delivery I used. So it was uh-huh. probably the most blatant uh, thievery I'd ever experienced in my career was, uh-huh. was Benji. But um, yeah. this has been many years ago. So it's, it's we're talking, you know, 20, 30 uh-huh. years ago. So uh, I doubt anybody except for the old timers uh, even think about Benji or know Benji Hill's name. So I'll be done. But it just shows you there were people who would stoop that low, not only to steal someone's material, but also steal sort of the distinctive way they performed it. That's, so. yeah, that's that's pretty low. I know uh, there are other stories out there about other jugglers who have done that. I saw a performance at Circus Circus when I went to the Second World Juggling Federation convention at the Riviera, a guy who did Michael Motion's triangle routine word for word yeah well that's that's probably Jean saint jules uh yes i believe that was the name because his thing was he took dan menendez's piano juggling routine yes and he placed it inside michael motion's triangle so he had kind of a combined <laughs> thievery of both routines oh my and he was a fine juggler i remember seeing him many years uh, earlier at circus circus when i was just a teenager uh-huh. and he had a very polished routine but he decided that uh, you know, taking those two routines was advantageous to his career. And he got a lot of mileage, especially out of uh, Dan Menendez's uh, piano routine. So it is a problem of it in juggling uh, that there, we have had some instances of, you know, people copying other people's material. Yes. In fact, I just got a, a message from a, a friend of mine uh, who's in Germany. He actually had talked to Barry, my partner, and he said that someone in Germany was doing Michael Davis's routine verbatim but in German. <laughs> so so even though Michael is pretty much retired, his, his material lives on and even lives on in German. Oh, my. And there are probably other languages out there, too, that take advantage of it. Well, I, I imagine he is the most copied juggler of all time, as far as, as far as comedy jugglers go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have, in moments of weakness, used a line or two of his when it came up as an ad lib. <laughs> it felt bad, but Damn, this is so perfect. How could I not not do it? Well, I think he probably had the best. Di- he probably had the best lines. I mean, he really had a wonderful dialogue, and it really worked. It was really great material. So I, I can understand why people gravitated towards it. Oh, I, that line of his that he began his return with the one he did for Reagan, where he says, "It's not how many, but style." Or right, it just juggles a single ball. Yes, that's just a, a marvelous piece. Now, in addition to your own uh, juggling company and the Mysteries Night of the Juggler, you've had a long relationship with the IJA. That's correct. And you've done many, many workshops. Now, I have a uh-huh. list here of when the, when the conventions were. What was your first convention? What year? I thought, <laughs> I still think that it was 1983 in purchase. That 1983 was purchased, so you were correct. And 1986 was... Uh, San Jose. San Jose, California. So you were I correct on that, that one as well, yeah. 
I, I couldn't even remember there was a festival in San Jose. So uh-huh. so I tried to convince you there wasn't even a festival there. But yeah, 1986, well, San Jose. Yeah, that was the one where you had God. What was the name of the big burly? Oh, Larry Merlo. Larry Merlo with the uh, rhinestone jockstrap, and you passed a bowling ball through his leg. Yeah, we had him on a mini trampoline, and we passed three bowling balls around his body. Oh, yeah. By bouncing the bowling balls between his legs, we had him in a, a sequin jockstrap. Those were the days. <laughs> I loved. I loved it. I loved it. I have been a fan of you and Barry and the Raspinis for from that moment on. <laughs> Every chance I got to see you guys, it was wonderful. And you and Barry were so kind when you had your wonderful run in Atlantic City to host uh, myself and Jen and a couple of other of our jugglers at your wonderful theater and tell that story because that's a good story i don't think a lot of people know that of how you guys hired a theater and produced your own show yeah for two months in atlantic city we had our own show and it was it was quite successful we had a magician was our was our middle act right and it was only supposed to be a month but it was well received enough to extend it for two months yeah and the nice thing was there was a guaranteed salary plus we got a bonus if we sold a certain number of tickets so every night the, the hotel gave out a certain number of tickets, you know, as, as sort of a premium to their gamblers. It was pretty much a full house almost every night uh-huh. because we didn't have to sell that many tickets. Most of them were given away. Oh, even better. I did even not better. know that part of the story. <laughs> well, I think it's hard to sell tickets for a juggling show. Uh-huh. But even if we sold a small amount above what they gave away, we always got a nice bonus. So we were earning, you know, maybe three or four thousand dollars a week each, which was, you know, pretty good money for us back in that day. Uh-huh. And have our own show was uh, was, you know, quite prestigious. I don't know any other jugglers who had that in Atlantic City. So that was a very good run for us. I, I went and saw uh, quite a few jugglers in my time going down there, but they were always uh, part of something else. They never had their own show. You guys had your own top billing. And uh, put on a hell of a show. Yeah, we had a good run in Atlantic City. That was the first place we ever did a opening act. Like uh-huh. our first our first performance after we were on the Tonight Show. Like we had been doing, you know, Renaissance fairs and cruise ships and just pretty low level stuff until we did the Tonight Show. And our first big engagement was a week with Billy Crystal at uh, one one of Trump's hotels in Atlantic City uh-huh. for uh, ten thousand for the week. Wow! So. <laughs> For it was quite a quite a jump up for us. How sweet it is! How sweet, yeah. Back in the day, man. Back in the glory days, glory days. Uh-huh. But you know, going back to the IJ, now you did a lot of uh, activities. You did a lot of workshops, and one of the workshops you you always would lead was something I never was that aware of. But it was a type of juggling called claymation. Can you explain to our listeners what claymation was? It's clay motion. Clay motion. Okay. Yes. It's little small tricks that look really impressive. Like they don't, the balls don't seem to leave your hands much. Is that the idea? There's a lot of what is called multiplex involved. Sometimes you're throwing two balls. If you're juggling three balls, for example, you might throw two in the air and with from one hand and catch one in each hand and then do something with the third ball while they're up in the air. Richard Clay, a Brit, First introduced it to the IJA in 1994 in Burlington. And I was standing talking with Neil Stammer, 
uh, a Philadelphia juggler. God, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Uh, anyway, the three of us were standing there. We looked across the gym at the same time, and we saw this guy with three three-inch stage balls, green, dark green, doing these little tiny things, and it was fantastic. And we all three made a beeline across the gym <laughs> right. and introduced ourselves. What's your name? And he said, oh, I'm Richard Clay. And we said, could you do some more of that? We've never seen anything like that. And so he did all of these things. And I'm pleased to say that Richard and his lovely wife, Katie Clay, and I have become friends. And I'm very fond of the style of juggling. I have, uh, uh, I think I've invented a few of the tricks myself. And I know a whole ton of clay motion. I've taught clay motion since, let's see, the first one. You've got the schedule right there in front of you. I do. I do. Uh, uh, Nevada, not Las Vegas, but out on the California border. Um, oh, was that um, Prim, right? Prim. Prim. What was that, 98? That was 98. Bingo. Perfect. Yeah. That's the first time I taught a uh, class. Somebody said, we really need somebody to teach workshops. Anybody do a workshop? And I said, oh, I can do three balls. So I did a three ball workshop. That was it. I just, every year I did a workshop for about three years. And then I started two workshops. And then I did three workshops. Yeah, three balls has always been like one of your specialties. Oh, I adore three balls. There's no end of the permutations. You, you think you know it all. And then, son of a gun, look at this. <laughs> I know uh, Taylor Glenn is also a big component, a big uh, believer in clay, ma clay motion. Oh, yeah. Bless, bless her heart. She is uh, probably the foremost exponent of it. Her videos. She's a wonderful videographer. Mm -hmm. And her video lessons of clay motion, I recommend highly. They're the best. She has terminology. Gosh, I can't remember where we were. Maybe it was, well, it's not important. Mm -hmm. Where half a dozen of us sat around after the numbers club, the, the how many clubs could you pass in a minute competition? And we're, we all took, a bunch of us took part in it. And afterwards, we sat down on the floor and we started trying to name tricks. And Richard Clay had a trick that he called the caterpillar. And we thought that was a great name for the trick. And we started with that. And then we started naming other kinds of clay motion tricks. And everybody else had sort of died right there. But uh, Taylor picked up the ball. And <laughs> that's not intended, but there it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and ran with it. And she did a lot of work with clay motion and did a lot of workshops with clay motion. Yeah, it's nice that that style has sort of been kept alive all these years. It's a really fun style for people to, to get into and sort of add to their own three-ball stylings. Right, right. The first time I saw it used extensively, because Richard never performed, was in Baltimore. Okay, so Baltimore, and that would have been... 89. 89. Loyola. Yeah. Dan Menendez was there, great guy. I asked him to show me tricks, and he said, sure. And one of the tricks that he did was one where you had two balls in the palm of your hand and one on your arm, 
and he would throw all of them in the air at one time. The one on the arm would land in the palm. He'd reach up and grab one of them, and the other one would fall back in the palm. And I thought that was wonderful. And then I saw you in Canada, I think, uh, when you in Montreal. Competed. Yeah. In Montreal. Yeah, that was what, 93? 92. 92. 92. When you should have won the championship. I've always felt. Yeah, that's when I performed as a golf act. I did uh, Danny Mulligan. You, you did Danny Mulligan. You balanced. Uh, <laughs> you did three balls. You did some wonderful stuff, juggling with uh, golf balls and a yeah, a, a wedge. What the heck was that big flat club that you used? <laughs> yeah, the big uh, giant niblick. It was a big giant sandwich. Uh, that was it. Yes. Yeah, that was a great routine. I love that routine. Yeah, that was I. I was very proud because I I did it flawlessly. Not too many people have competed flawlessly in the IJ Championships. Uh huh. So that was one of my proud moments to pat myself on the back. There, I I thought I should have won too, <laughs> to be honest. Well, we're in agreement. We're in agreement. Uh, the winner, fine routine, but uh, how many drops did he have? One hundred and seventeen, or maybe it just seemed that way. No, I think it's more that. The idea with the competitions is they didn't always seem to follow their own rules, where at a certain point, there was this idea that uh, creativity and a theme and uh, having sort of a you know unique style actually mattered. And he had uh-huh. a very, very derivative circus style, very, you know, he was a bounce juggler wearing the, the typical sort of circus style jumpsuit. And I think I thought he had a couple of tricks that were harder than the tricks I did. I thought in every other every other category, he shouldn't have scored very well because it was, wasn't a very original routine. I agree. But, you know, these things are subjective. and uh, There so, you go. Yeah, there you go. But it would have been nice to, to have won uh, an IGA competition as an individual. I, got, I did get to win a couple team ones, but I would have liked yeah. to have that in my, in my arsenal of, of accomplishments. But that one got away from me. Yeah, I remember... <laughs> I remember just about every one of your routines. And my favorite line of all of those that you came up with was in Los Angeles when you came in second. And you came out (laughs) and you said, it's great to be in a competition where you're guaranteed to come in second place. I think there was only two competitors that year, wasn't there? There were only two competitors. I think we competed against Darn Good and Funny. Darn Good and Funny. And they they had a great routine. A lot of times it's the power of music. I think they had that I Love L.A. by Randy Newman, right, as their song. You got me there. I didn't recognize the song, but I (laughs) I remember the routine, and I remember how it was received by the audience. The audience ate it up with a spoon. I think by that point there was some Raspini Brother burnout. We had already won the competition a couple of times. Uh Uh-huh. And and I think we, we competed, and I competed, many, many times in a row. Like that was something I would always do when I would go to juggling festival, the IJ, right. is I would always compete for maybe 10 years in a row or something I did it. I like to see partners. I like to see people who do interesting things and who entertain. And there have been some great twin partnerships. Uh, I mentioned yeah. the Carbonus brothers who were in Night of the Jugglers. But there was the um, well, there Sakai. was the Sakai. Which one? That's what I was trying to, that would be Greg Kennedy and uh, Chris Ivy. Mm. They won the competition. Oh gosh, Buffalo or Niagara, somewhere in there. 
and technically they said nothing when they performed. It was all technical juggling. And it was really great technical jugglers. They're two fine technical jugglers. They put a great routine together. It was, that was a real treat. The twins from uh, out in Kennett Square here, uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Were they the, acro- the ones who did a lot of acrobatics? Yes. They went on to do Cirque du Soleil? I don't know if they went to Cirque du Soleil or not, but uh, they were, uh, what the heck, Jake and Marty LaSalle. Oh, LaSalle brothers, exactly. Thank you, the because LaSalle that was, uh, I was losing that in my brain as well, the LaSalle brothers. Yeah, they did go on to Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. They were in uh, Night of the Jugglers. And one of the little pieces of trivia was that uh, the twin girls, Becky and Laura. Yeah. I can't remember what their names were before. Is it Caseman? Is it Caseman, I think? Uh, that's their married name. Okay. I can't, re- I was trying to remember their name before that. But they did a four person routine with Jake and Marty in the Philadelphia <laughs> Juggler Show. Right. It was, a, it was a hoot. It really was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we've had a few, a few twin groups. Obviously, the Kane brothers. Uh huh. That, there's something about, you know, twins juggling together, especially club passing, that's quite right. uh, enchanting to watch. Yeah, they were they were on my list of people that I was going to mention as twins. You beat me to it. Mm. And David has been phenomenal with his historian uh, gig and his museum in Ohio. That's that's quite have you been there? I've never been there, but of course, I'm a big fan of what he does. The fact that there is a juggling museum at all uh-huh. is all credit to him. Yeah. And the fact that all these old props and these old older jugglers who have vanished from most people's memories, you know, mm-hmm. he keeps them alive. He keeps them alive through having their props. If I ever get a chance to visit, uh-huh. I would love to do that. Yes. And how many how many IJ festivals have you been to in total? Uh, I couldn't tell you the total, Dan, but uh, I was in 83. And then from 86 on, I didn't miss any until this year when I was in the hospital. And what about next year? Do you plan to go to uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana? Darn tootin'. I'm going to be in <laughs> South Bend unless they put me in the hospital again. Well, take care of yourself because I want to go there too. It's been a long time since I've seen a lot of my oh, good. my friends. So I, I am planning to go out there. Oh, that'll be wonderful. We'll have to do breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Even though I'm not juggling much anymore, you know, my, my interest has transferred to pickleball. But Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> but we have another interest in common, you and me. We both love to play poker. Ah, uh, yes. Are you still playing poker? Only uh, on the free site, Poker Stars. I don't trust them anymore. They took a lot of my money when they yeah they canceled everything, and then they didn't come through with uh, paying off what they owed. Well, the online sites had a lot of cheating, too. They had a lot of collusion, unfortunately. It was hard to trust the online sites. There was that. There was that. I did very well the first few years that poker was online because a huge crowd of people that didn't know what they were doing most of the computers that we've had in the company or here in the household were paid for by gambling by poker winnings of course we don't we don't support gambling except unless poker because poker is a a game of skill yeah i couldn't agree more my father taught me to play poker when i was seven years old and we were both ill at the same time i was home from school and he was home from his job in the Navy Yard. He taught me how to play cribbage, gin rummy, and poker, and for which I am eternally grateful because I certainly enjoyed my car playing in my lifetime. Well, you have a very, very diverse life. We didn't even mention the fact that you're also a very accomplished harmonica player. 
Uh, yeah, that's another thing. Uh, 1994 in Burlington, if you look at the video from that, that convention video, the music background, I provided that. So of all the things, I mean, uh, poker, bowling, basketball, harmonica, and of course, juggling uh-huh. have all been a through line in your life, Jackie. It's very, uh, they, very inspiring. They have. They have. They, and they've all been secondary to my family, which is absolutely magnificent, and uh, my work. I'm very proud of my teaching career. I'm very proud of my union work. I was chief negotiator for the Upper Darby uh, Teachers Union for free contracts. I like to think I did a, I did my job there, and I thought I did it very well, both cases. So, yeah, I've a, I'm, I'm having a great run, Dan. I really, uh, I'm very happy with my life, struggling with health issues, but what the heck, I'm 85. That's what you expect. Well, you've had an extraordinary life, and thank you so much for sharing it with our listeners. And a really a big appreciation from me and my wife here at the Drop Everything Enterprises. And I can't wait to see you next year in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Drop Everything podcast. And it's been my pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much for asking me. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast number 111, my conversation with the great Jackie Erickson. Thank you, Jackie. Look forward to seeing you next year in beautiful South Bend, Indiana at the IJA Festival. My name is Dan Holzman, and I want to thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Also, I want to wish everybody a happy new year. Let's all have a great 2023. And remember, drop everything except when you're juggling.